We have a planet of rage. Hello and welcome to episode number 150 of the Random Thoughts Podcast. That's R-A-N-D-U-M-B thoughts.com online. I am your host, Darren O'Neill, and there is a lot to talk about on today's show. As always, the world is burning down, this time in the Middle East, where Afghanistan has gone to Taliban control within seemingly moments of the United States pulling out. And it's interesting to watch this because, you know, we watch the media and how it is covered and how things were covered under Donald J. Trump and now how things are covered under Joe Biden. What's Joe Biden's middle name? Don't know his middle initial. But hey, what we're getting is a story that is convoluted at best. We're seeing videos, often horrendous videos of the scene in Afghanistan as people try to grab onto the American planes as they're taking off, not wanting to be left behind as the Taliban took control, which happened nearly instantaneously. We don't have to remind everybody if you've been paying attention, that is that just about a month or so ago, Joe Biden said this wasn't going to happen. This chaos would not happen when we pulled out the United States, that is, from Afghanistan. You weren't going to have helicopters picking people up off of roofs. It wasn't going to be chaos. And Joe was unfortunately wrong. He did make a speech to the country, Joe Biden, that is. And he took Marine One, jaunted over from his summer place, gave his speech. And then promptly ran away like a scared little girl. This is a not. This is a not. No, this is not a good look for the president of the United States to not be able to answer reporters' questions about a very serious issue. Joe Biden read his little bit off the teleprompter. We know the presidents never write this stuff. But Donald Trump quite often went off script, quite often, you could tell, was not reading off a teleprompter. He didn't need a teleprompter. Neither did Barack Obama, although he read off a teleprompter quite a bit. Barack Obama could still talk intelligently off the cuff. Joe Biden, not so much. Without the teleprompter, I don't know if Joe Biden has anything. I don't know if Joe Biden has the ability to govern at this point. I don't know if Joe Biden has the ability to create cohesive sentences within his brain at this point he can still read that is the one thing we know joe biden can still read the teleprompter who's writing the words coming out of his mouth i don't know you can make your own guesses at that but joe biden came out read a teleprompter gave the statement and did not take a single solitary question from the media that was gathered and that should bother everybody on both sides of the aisle i mean everybody was sick of donald trump 
when COVID started because he was on TV pretty much nonstop for hours a day with Fauci and Burks and a few other people. But he was taking questions and he was speaking to reporters. And did he make some mistakes? Sure. There were some things that were blown way out of proportion. Overall, his performance, as far as being able to grasp a situation and put together a response, both to the reporters and on a national level, to put together a response of what we're going to do because of the situation. When it came to COVID, I know there's still a lot of you out there who maybe are more into the conspiracy-minded things, but Donald Trump got a vaccine pushed through faster than anybody else thought was possible. The problem was COVID. That was the response. When it comes to Afghanistan, Joe Biden's response is, "Mm, don't have a response. We did the right thing. We didn't make a mistake. And that is a very bad response just from the optics level of things. I think most people agree that being in Afghanistan full-time, never leaving, no end in sight, bad thing. A lot of people agreed that it was beyond time to get out of Afghanistan, but what you're leaving in your wake is the big story here. And the optics look really bad when the news, both the left-wing news, the right-wing news, and everything in the middle of the news are showing an absolute travesty on the ground in Afghanistan. People falling from the skies, literally, after hanging on to the American aircraft that were leaving. For that to be the video fresh in every American's mind, just a tragic series of events going on in Afghanistan utter chaos going on in Afghanistan. Joe Biden coming on the TV set and saying, you know, we did exactly the right thing and I wouldn't do anything differently. We were a little surprised, sure, about how quickly the Taliban retook the streets and cities of Afghanistan. We were a little surprised by that, Joe said, but we we still did the right thing. And that is just, to me, really bad optics when you have a leader, when the whole world could see what you just did was not the right thing. And yeah, it's easy to be an armchair quarterback. It's easy to look at things after they were put into place and to second guess them. But doubling down on the stupidity of a plan. That is leaving all sorts of carnage in its wake. Not a good thing. Did Joe Biden know he was doing that? I don't know. I don't know if Joe knows where he is. The fact that they're not letting him, and this is this is concerning, and I know I've mentioned it before, but it's very concerning that there are people running, you know, put that in quotes. There are people controlling, put that in quotes. There are people that are pulling the strings of Joe Biden because he's said multiple times. When he was taking questions, you know, I'm going to get in trouble for this. I shouldn't be talking to you. They don't want me to answer this. And uh, 
who that is again, I don't know. But when you have a president in that diminished of a state to where he cannot answer questions from the media, you have a real problem. Countries around the world can see this. They understand that Joe Biden is diminished. And they understand that because of that, the United States is diminished. When you look at Afghanistan, this was a no-win situation. I mean, the Soviet Union figured this one out a long time ago. It's a country that is very tribal. It is not run by one cohesive government. And it was going to be nearly impossible to nation build here. And it was interesting. Uh, Bill O'Reilly pulled out a clip last night of Joe Biden, who was in Afghanistan, you know, 20 years ago or so at the beginning of all of this starting. And back then, Joe was without a doubt all for nation building. And that was a big faux pas. And this happened under multiple watches. And Joe Biden cannot be blamed for the faux pas of what's going on in Afghanistan, you know, 20 years ago. I mean, sure, he was in the Senate. Sure, he was vice president for eight of those years. But no, we don't want to blame Joe for that, at least not personally. He's just part of the machine when it came down to that. But when you have a tribal society, things are not the same as what most people are used to in the United States, in the UK, Australia, EU. It's a much different way of doing business. And the difference here with Joe Biden being diminished because people are pointing to the fact that Donald Trump said, I'm going to pull the guys and gals of the military. I mean, sorry to gender you, but he's going to pull all of the boots on the ground, wanted to get them out of Afghanistan. So you can't say, that what Joe Biden did here as commander in chief was 100% different than Trump. I mean, they'll blame Trump because they are now saying, well, you know, uh, yeah, uh, it was because uh, we're pulling out because Donald Trump was going to pull out. I mean, let's forget for a minute, I guess, that everything Joe Biden's done since he got into office was basically trying to undo everything Donald Trump did. So Joe Biden and his folks still had control over this. They decided that the idea of pulling out of the area in Afghanistan was a good one. And that's not necessarily incorrect, but it's how you go about pulling out from an area like this. The last thing you really want to do is allow everything you'd worked for for 20 years to fall nearly overnight which is seemingly what happened. And there were still a lot of American guns on the ground. There was a lot of American tanks, a lot of American equipment on the ground there in Afghanistan. So the reality is the Taliban fighters now just got rearmed, it seems, by a lot of what was left on the ground. If you were going to pull out in a military operation like this, the smarter thing to do would have been to start doing it slowly, start moving things out, start making some changes, never let the enemy know what you're doing. And uh, that's not what happened here. But the difference is 
between Donald Trump and Joe Biden came from uh, something that Bill O'Reilly pointed out, who he has been in contact with. He's going out on tour in the at the end of the year here with Donald Trump. They're buddies. So, I mean, granted, there's a bias here, but he got the inside scoop. And Donald Trump, he said, was very upset about what's going on here. And he pointed out that the difference between what's going on with Joe Biden now with this pullout and with Donald Trump is that Donald Trump actually had a face to face chat with some of the Taliban leaders. And a lot of people didn't like that. This all goes down. I mean, there's always both sides of this argument like, ah, how dare you talk to terrorists? How dare you do any kind of negotiations with them? But if you know you're going to end up pulling out of Afghanistan and you want to try to make sure that what is left behind is not complete and utter chaos and carnage, what Donald Trump did was had a sit down with a few of these Taliban leaders, according to Bill O'Reilly, and told them, you know, here's the deal. If I can use a Bidenism, once we start pulling people out of here, I want this to be orderly. Donald Trump wanted civility from the Taliban, and he told them if he did not get it, the United States will be back. And not only will the United States be back, but he took a page right out of the Taliban playbook and he told these Taliban leaders straight out, if the United States has to come back, we're not just coming back, but we're coming for you and we're coming for everybody in your family. We know who you are. And if this turns into a crap show, and you start the same old things up again, uh, we're going to hold you responsible and we're going to kill your family. And that may seem like a very harsh thing for the president of the United States to say, but you know, with the Taliban and Donald Trump, they believed him because he was telling the truth. Because sometimes you have to get your hands dirty in order to get something done. Now, with Joe Biden, the Taliban knows something completely and utterly different. They can see. He's a diminished, befuddled guy who can only read off a teleprompter and can't even answer questions from the media that bent over backwards to get him elected. You can't even say the media is anti-Biden in any way, shape or form. They're the most pro-Biden group out there. And he won't take questions from them. So what does the Taliban see? They see a weak leader in Joe Biden. And with Donald Trump gone, they know all bets are off. They can do whatever they want in Afghanistan. And there's going to be very little chance that uh, they're going to be targeted by the United States for that. So, I mean, for all of you that voted for Joe Biden, I hope you're happy. I hope you're elated about what you're getting. A diminished guy who is letting the world fall apart, who is letting gas prices or not only letting gas prices, or he is the reason gas prices are soaring with the pipeline shut down. Then he's begging OPEC for more oil. I mean, Joe, we were oil, energy, and independent 
under Donald Trump. You came inside a few pieces of paper and screwed it up. Does Joe Biden know he did that? I don't know because he doesn't write those executive orders either. He's reading a teleprompter and he's signing what's put in front of him. This is elder abuse, most likely. I don't know if Joe Biden knows what he's doing. I really do not. But he's the reason why your gas prices are going up. He's the reason why food prices are going up. Anybody paying attention has to be able to see this. And a lot of people are hurting. A lot of people are starting to scrimp on food because they simply cannot afford it. A vast majority of people, I saw an article earlier today, were not able to handle a $2,000 emergency that happened in their life, no matter what it was, whether it was a health issue, whether it was their car got destroyed, you know, whatever. They didn't have the ability to absorb that before the pandemic began. And now things, of course, are getting worse and worse and worse. And as all this is going on, it's interesting if you watch the mainstream media and if you do, why? Let me know why, because it seems like an utter waste of time. But if you're following the mainstream media, you're not seeing a whole lot of stories about putting blame on why gas prices going up, why the grocery prices are going up. The mainstream media is having a little bit of a problem with Joe Biden when it comes to Afghanistan, because this is almost too big to avoid covering the story. And it's very hard, even if you're a Joe Biden cheerleader, to figure out a way to put a positive spin on what is going on in Afghanistan. And all of these things combined are having an effect on the mainstream corporate media overall, because a recent poll done shows that only 20% of Americans say that they trust the corporate media, only 20%. That, I mean, I know I'm not a math major, but that means 80% of the country does not trust the mainstream media. So this explains, among other things, why the amount of people watching the mainstream media, as far as CNN, MSNBC, why that has cratered, why so many once glorious newspapers are closing their doors or are down to a bare minimum of subscribers. It's because the media is showing that at this point, they only want to be activists. They don't really want to cover the story. They want to push you in a direction rather than honestly covering the story. And we've talked about that. It seems over and over again here on the Random Thoughts podcast. So people are turning the news off. They're not reading the newspapers. And unfortunately, where they're going for their news turns out to be, I mean, okay, some of them are going to podcasters, and that's probably you because you're listening to me right now bloviating. And I thank you for that. A lot of people are turning to social media And I think anybody that's been following social media, and I know we've talked about it here as well, can see that what the social media sites are turning into is a cesspool. There is a lot of anger. There's a lot of rage. There's a lot of misinformation. There is a lack of an honest debate because now 
the social media sites can also silence the side that they don't like with a mouse click, and that's bad. But there was a Yale University study, which I thought was quite interesting, which looked at the social media landscape and tried to figure out if there was a reason that they could detect, which is the hardest thing when it comes down to large entities like this. When you look at Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, and you go, you know, it seems like there's a lot more hate here. But what's causing that? Is it simply a reaction to what's going on in society? Or is there something about those? platforms that are at the root of the rage and the anger that is coming off of them. Now, if you ask the social media folks, the people that run the face bags and Twitters and Instagrams and the TikToks, they're going to go with the party lineup. We're just we're just providing a platform here. We're just letting people speak. I mean, granted, they're silencing some people, too. But their side of the argument is going to be we're just giving people a place to have a conversation just like they would offline. But that is not the truth. That is absolutely not the truth. They are not just opening up a way for people to communicate. I mean, besides the fact that they can kick people out of their playground and silence them and give one side of the argument an unfair advantage to that. but. What we have with the social media platforms, not only is there a conversation going on, not only can they silence the side that they don't like, but there's also some things baked into the social media platforms that you don't have when you're speaking to somebody eye to eye, when you're speaking to somebody, you know, even in a group. You don't have what the social media platforms have. And what this study from Yale University found was that the way social media works with the way people are responded to has a big effect on what people post. It found that things like the like button, like the share button, these are things you don't have. If you're just talking to somebody, you know, if you run into your buddy out on the street and you say something, I mean, they could nod their head and they could say, yeah, I like what you're saying, but that's not the equivalent of a bunch of strangers liking your post. And you could just see the numbers riling up, riling up, riling up and the higher and higher they go. Anybody that's ever posted anything that's gone viral, there is that little uh, dopamine hit. There's a little bit of euphoria. You know, people like. Yes, I said something good. And what the study wanted to look at was how that mechanism changes what people are saying when it comes down to viewpoints that are considered a little bit more extreme. Quoting here, it says social media's incentives are changing the tone of our political conversations online. This is a quote from Yale's William Brady, a postdoctoral researcher in the Yale Department of Psychology, and he's the first author listed on this study. 
He led the research with a woman named Molly Crockett, who is an associate professor of psychology at Yale. From this article on it, it says, quote, the Yale team measured the expression of moral outrage on Twitter during real life controversial events and studied the behaviors of subjects in controlled experiments designed to test whether social media's algorithms, which reward users for posting popular content, encouraged outrage expressions. Brady said, quote, this is the first evidence that some people learn to express more outrage over time because they are rewarded by the basic design of social media. So, again, this is showing that the design of Twitter, of Facebook, of Instagram, the systems that allow you to get likes, to be encouraged when people want to see more of that type of content. I mean, if you want to see less, then, you know, you would have a hate button, but you don't have that because it's mean, even though it was Ashton Kushner, which thought that might not be a bad idea to have a dislike button as well to kind of balance things out. But the problem with the design is that these systems are in place that reward what people consider to be good. And you put that in quotes, what they consider to be good posts. And then it leads to more people posting what gets the positive interaction. From the study paper here again, it says, quote, social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter argue that they are merely providing a neutral platform for conversations that would otherwise happen elsewhere. But many have speculated that social media amplifies outrage. Hard evidence for this claim was missing, however, because measuring complex social expressions like moral outrage with precision poses a technical challenge. To compile the evidence, Brady and Crockett assembled a team which built machine learning software capable of tracking moral outrage in Twitter posts and observational studies of 12.7 million tweets from 7,331 Twitter users. They used the software to test whether users expressed moral outrage over time, and if so, why? The team found that the incentives of social media platforms like Twitter really do change how people post. Users who received more likes and retweets when they expressed outrage in a tweet were more likely to express outrage in later posts. To back up these findings, the researchers conducted controlled behavioral experiments to demonstrate that being rewarded for expressing outrage caused users to increase their expression of outrage over time. End quote. So social media sites, without a doubt in anybody's mind at this point, have a lot of control over the content that appears on their pages. This is at the heart of a lot of the arguments when it comes down to Section 230, which is the sites like Twitter and Facebook saying, yeah, we're just we're just a conduit. We're not publishers. We just let people post whatever they want. Thus, we can't be held responsible for what people are posting. And what the reality is turns to be completely different, because even once you get behind the argument of, well, Twitter is silencing conservative voices, so thus they should be considered a publisher. It goes way beyond that, because that argument totally discounts a lot more of what's going on, which is 
if somebody posts content that Twitter likes, well, do you really know that all of those likes, all of those retweets are legitimate? I mean, only Twitter knows. Only looking at the actual data from them, you could see what accounts are liking, what accounts are retweeting, and all of that. But the reality is, it's very easy to see when a big conservative voice gets banned from Twitter because they're gone. What we don't see is all of, say, the liberal posts that Twitter really likes, then that they could be throwing a lot of fake likes and retweets. And that's not what this study was talking about. But this shows how easy the system is to manipulate because the study does prove that, you know, any schlub on Twitter, if they post something that the powers that be, you know, in this case that run Twitter like, well, they could get a lot more likes. They could get some extra likes. I mean, one, it's nice to really think, you know, that I guess it's their real people, friends and family that follow them that are giving the likes and retweets. And maybe that's true. But this is a system that's very easily manipulated. And once you realize that the more a system encourages you for certain types of posts, the more of those types of posts the average person is going to make because most people want the likes. They feel good. Most people want the retweets. That feels good. People are agreeing with me. People are taking my opinion seriously. I get it. I'm a podcaster. I really enjoy when people take quotes of stuff I say and they post it because it's like, hey, you know what I'm doing? I'm doing well. I said something that hit home, but I also understand that any system can be gamified. And what you have going on here now with social media, I think it's a very serious problem when we now have. I mean, this is something everybody would have said for a long time. Ah, You can't prove that the way these social media sites are set up is leading people to be more radicalized, leading to more outrage. But this is a study from Yale, and I'm sure, you know, there's a lot of lefties involved in Yale because they're a university, but Yale's still pretty well respected, aren't they? I mean, they're one of the most respected universities. And here's a study saying, yes, in fact, social media, the way it's set up, is leading to more outrage and it leads to more people posting extreme content because the system is set up in such a way that if they get likes and retweets, well, then they're going to post more extreme content, which means you are more easily radicalized. You are more quickly going to get into an extreme mindset because of the response that you get on social media, which is not something that exists. If you are outside of the social media landscape, this article continues, quote, the results also suggest a troubling link to current debates on social media's role in political polarization. Brady and his colleagues found that members of politically extreme networks express more outrage than members of politically moderate networks. However, members of politically moderate networks were actually more influenced by social rewards. Quoting here from Ms. Crockett, our studies find that people with politically moderate friends and followers are more sensitive to social feedback 
that reinforces their outrage expressions. This suggests a mechanism for how moderate groups can become politically radicalized over time. The rewards of social media with their creating positive feedback loops exacerbate outrage. Now, it says the study did not aim to say whether amplifying moral outrage is good or bad for society. That was something that Ms. Crockett stressed. But the findings do have implications for leaders who use the platforms and policymakers who are considering whether or not to regulate them. Now, is there ever a time when amplifying outrage is a good thing? Even if you're on the, you know, quote, right, correct side of things, at least you always think you are. But even if you can guarantee you're on the right side of things, whatever that may be, is amplifying outrage really the best thing to do? Because usually once people get into full outrage mode, they lose their sense of perspective and more times than not, they lose the ability to have a rational conversation and it's uh, very close to the point where things like violence actually begin. So while this study didn't look or try to make a case for whether this was good or bad, I would think common sense should step back in here and say that having more outrage is not a good thing. Also, Ms. Crockett said, quoting, Amplification of moral outrage is a clear consequence of social media's business model, which optimizes for user engagement. Given that moral outrage plays a crucial role in social and political change, we should be aware that tech companies, through the design of their platforms, have the ability to influence the success or failure of collective movements. Now, this should scare everybody about how much power and how much influence these social media platforms have. They can make the average user think just about anything. And we've seen this through the presidency of Donald Trump. We've seen this through the January 6th riot at the Capitol. We've seen this through COVID-19. There is no question in my mind that the social media platforms are shaping the way people think by boosting those posts and topics that they agree with, burying and banning people that say things that they don't like. And the end result is the average person believes what they're seeing on social media is what's going on in reality. And I don't think that's true. It's very important at this time, more than any other, to actually have discussions with people that you know, have them face to face if you can, or have them verbally or on a Zoom meeting, something like that. So you can see the other person while speaking and not in a text format and where there are no algorithms in between. You reading what's being uh, posted, you know, and uh, the, the message won't get lost. You can ask questions immediately. If you have a question, if you're talking to a buddy who says something, well, what do you mean by that? 
because what the social media is doing right now is taking certain ideologies and pushing them. Ms. Crockett also said, quote, our data shows that social media platforms do not merely reflect what is happening in society. Platforms create incentives that change how users react to political events over time. This is brainwashing, folks. This is the reshaping of reality. What you're seeing on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and TikTok is not reality. You have to know that if you're going to be aware of what's truly going on in the world. And again, talk to people directly, not on social media. Do not believe what you're seeing. Understand that when you look at your timeline and any one of those sites, what you're seeing has been specifically curated for you. And some people seem to like that. But the reality is, this is how so many people seem to have completely different viewpoints on the world at this point is because you're being fed a whole bunch of different stuff. Algorithms are deciding what you see and what you don't see. And they're also encouraging people to become more radicalized. They're encouraging people to get angrier. They're encouraging people by the likes, by the boosts, by the retweets, whatever system each individual social media platform uses. They're using the things built into their platforms to encourage people to post even more extreme things. This does not exist when people just had conversations before social media. This does not exist when people have conversations with family and friends. And I'm really glad they did this study. And maybe it'll get traction, maybe it won't. But for those paying attention, this is a very nice, clear cut case where you can point to something and say, hey, you know what? They looked at this and they found that social media sites are not good for spreading the truth. They don't encourage the truth. They don't encourage those boring posts that may just be facts, but they amplify outrage. And by amplifying outrage, they're changing the social fabric of the country and the world. And while Yale didn't want to uh, say whether that was good or bad quite yet, I think it's pretty clear that it's a bad thing. We have a planet of rage, and that is also a very nice segue into a brand new podcast I'm doing with my buddy Larry Blydner that'll be launching shortly. It's going to be called Planet Rage, and it's going to cover all sorts of these types of things, how social media is affecting the world, and other things that just overall piss us off. because that is a lot of content and watch for that coming soon we have a website it's planetrage.show yeah there's dot shows now too so besides dot com dot net dot org planetrage.show and that will be coming shortly but i want to thank you for coming along on another journey with me listening to this random thoughts podcast and i appreciate you giving me your time i know there's a lot of things you can be doing a lot of things you could be listening to. Hopefully, we're bringing you some value with these shows. 
We do work on the value for value models, which means we put these shows out there. And if you get any value at all, you decide what it was worth to you. You know, was it worth a couple of bucks? You know, was it worth a coffee at Starbucks? Was it worth a vinyl LP, which is what? Now, anywhere from like 15 bucks to 40, 50 bucks. Was it worth, you know, 100 bucks? I don't know. It's up to you, but you get to decide. And if you want to take part in the value for value model, you can go over to randomthoughts.com, R-A-N-D-U-M-B thoughts.com slash donate. Click that donate button, which you can do a one-time or a monthly donation through PayPal. You can use one of the QR codes or the wallet addresses if you want to go the crypto route. And you can use the P.O. box address if you want to go through your online bill pay or send a check, something like that. The beauty of that is nobody takes a percentage. Your bank will write the check for you. You don't even have to get an envelope and buy a stamp. Everything is just automatic. And we appreciate any which way you may come in. And we do want to thank Anonymous today with another $25 donation. No notes this time, but we hope you're still enjoying the show, getting some value out of it. And we appreciate everybody who has donated over the last few years to keep the microphones humming, you know, food on the table, gas in the tank, all those things. Prices are going up, up, up. And you can thank Uncle Joe for that. But we want to thank everybody for supporting the show. It is truly an honor for you to spend your hard earned money and for you to give us your time, which is a limited resource on its own. So until next week, when I will be back with another episode of this podcast, I am Darren O'Neill. Thanks for listening. 